The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. The following words all apply to today's guest. Playwright, author, actor, activist, feminist, Eve Ensler. All those words apply. Eve, welcome to Downstage welcome. Center. Welcome. Good morning, afternoon, whatever we are today. <laughs> well, um, you have quite a good body of work, and a, a pun definitely intended. One of your shows is called The Good Body, another show called The Vagina Monologues, which has been acclaimed for the last decade as being uh, groundbreaking, and now a new show that is just uh, playing here in New York, a world premiere of The Treatment, starring Dylan McDermott and Portia. Now, I know what the show is about, and Howard knows what it's about. We've seen it, but why don't you explain it for our radio audience, The Treatment? Well, I, I, I think it's hopefully about many things. Um, I, I I mean, the, the, the plot or the story is really about a traumatized soldier who comes to a military psychiatrist because of what he's done in a war, and that his terrible deed has actually traumatized his own soul. And, I mean, he comes for redemption, and then there's a whole journey that they go through together. I mean, I, I think it's about accountability. I think it's about um, betrayal. I think it's really about betrayal. It's a play about betrayal on all kinds of levels, how we get, how we betray ourselves, how we betray each other in the name of whatever it is that becomes more important. Well, I'm glad you used the word levels because that's what I was thinking when I was watching the show. This is at different levels. Yeah, it's a, a sergeant who's been traumatized because he's had to torture people, and the major who outranks him, who's also a woman, is trying to treat him, but for what reason, we wonder. And then you see various other political influences coming into it and the whole issue of the war. It's like on three or four or five different levels. I think so. I think we're all living on three or four or five different levels right now. I think these are very complex and very disturbing times. And, I, and you know, I think you, you, you just get up every morning and you think, how is it we're all just, I, I certainly feel how, is it we're not just living in the streets right now and standing up and speaking out? I mean, yesterday the Congress is debating whether, you know, we'll have a little bit of torture, you know? We'll make a compromise on torture. How do you compromise on torture? A little bit of electrocution's okay and a little bit of hooding, you know? I, and I think, what are we all doing? We're just going on with our lives in, in the face of all this. Well, did, did you just wake up one day and say, I think I'll write a show about this? Or how did, how did this come to you? Well, I think I'm, I've been fairly concerned or obsessed to some degree with violence in all my work in some capacity. And um, I mean, I think beginning with wherever I started in my life, uh, violence has been a, a fundamental concern. And I've been trying to understand it, why people commit violence, why people are cruel, what brings about violence, why isn't it changing? Why is the world getting more violent? And I think during this particular um, administration's time, um, the world has escalated in violence. You've made an interesting choice, though, in this play in that you give no specific details. This is not grounded in when we hear about torture. Certainly we think about Abu Ghraib or what's going on at Guantanamo. But none of that is mentioned by name in the play. We don't hear about the specific politics of that brought us to that place that you portray. How did you come to the decision to keep... Public, uh, current events out of it. Well, I think that the minute you step into it being about the specific time, the specific place, 
the the kind of polarization that occurs and the kind of camps that people just immediately switch into is so immediate and then thinking dies and people just hold their positions and 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 I think what I was more interested in this play is what torture does to a person who is tortured what how the specifics of how it changes and reshapes and redefines and shatters the soul because we hear about torture we even see images of torture but we really don't know what's happening to all these men and women who we've sent um to Iraq for example we don't know what their lives are like on the day-to-day specific you know um horrifying really details of it and i think i was more interested in making it a very personal specific thing so that it resonated with people. So if all it is is just a wake-up call to feel and think about the ramifications of what we're giving license to in the world. You spoke a moment ago saying that all of your work has dealt with violence in some way, yet in particular you've focused on violence against women and women's issues. In this play, though, the nature of who is the victim and who is the victimizer changes as we watch the show it does seem that you're dealing with a male perspective and the male psyche as it confronts issues of violence and torture. Is that a shift for you? Very much so. Very much so. I I think um, climbing into a male character for me was a huge change. And I think it's kind of like you take violence and then you try it from this direction and this direction and this direction. Like, how do we crack this particular... um, dynamic, this particular trajectory in the world. And I think getting inside that sergeant for me was um, a a really life-changing experience because not only did I understand how men are tyrannized into behaving in certain ways by certain codes and by certain landscapes of, you know, patriarchy and machismo, but the devastation to the male psyche once men have cooperated was absolutely um, kind of a, a you know a mind opening experience for me, and I feel very much for that soldier. I love that guy. You know, a certain element of your work has always been this may be the wrong phrase, but journalistic. You do interviews. You've adapted talks that you've had with with individuals. Is this soldier someone? that you met or an amalgam of people you've met? No. Or is he your, he's entirely a, your creation? He's a creation. I mean, I did a lot of research, obviously, on um, Abu Ghraib and Begram and, and Guantanamo, but he's actually a, a creation. And I think sometimes people don't fully understand the vagina monologues or the good body. They are actually literary creations that are based on on interviews. Well, I said adaptation. No, but yeah. I think sometimes mm-hmm. people think, oh, they're just kind of it's, direct It's not interviews. a transcription. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, I don't even use a tape recorder. I, I just write down a few lines or a few thoughts that I get from people in interviews. So, um, but no, this was based on on me and, and after reading a lot of um, uh, stories and, and just also the dynamics of what happened at Abu Ghraib and what was kind of given license to through the the environment and through a kind of unspoken, well, we don't know if it was unspoken, do we? That's to be revealed. I'm, I highly suspect it was more than spoken. But um, there are people covering the center, as he says in the play. You know? Well, uh, uh, kind of following up on the, on the same line, um, when you wrote the vagina monologues, you interviewed a couple hundred women. You asked them for their opinions of their vaginas, so to right. speak. When you uh, wrote The Good Body, you spoke to a lot of women and asked them for opinions of their body. For this, you talk about a female author yourself having to get into the male 
mindset, the male psyche. Did you speak with a lot of men to find I out? I didn't. You didn't? No, I actually didn't. Not at all. Why, no. why, 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 why the change in your method then? Well, I think I've written different plays. You know, I wrote a play called Lemonade, and I wrote a play called Floating Rhoda, uh-huh. and I've had a whole other series of plays that actually were not based on interviews. Necessary Targets was not really based on interviews, although I was in Bosnia and I spent time there. Um, this play just came from a different place in me. It came from... Um, concern, I think, for where we are right now. And it it grew out of, actually, it was initially this article I read years ago when I was in Bosnia about a Serbian psychiatrist who was working with a soldier and she became obsessed and possessed by his torture. And it began as that. And then I did three versions of it and it morphed into this. Now, then, in your own personal life, you have been involved in a relationship with this psychotherapist. Was he involved at all in helping you no, I'm not this. involved with him anymore. But, but you were, so. Yeah, I was. No, he wasn't at all involved. Uh-huh. No. Did you talk to any <laughs> any analysts, any psychologists? I, inter- I interviewed a couple of therapists at the beginning of this just to get a feel for would this happen, could this happen, is, uh-huh. you know what I mean, just to see, like, the the truth of it. And a lot of therapists have been to the play, and I've gotten really wonderful emails from people talking about how um, one therapist, one person who works with vets said that he almost got up on stage because it was so exactly what happens with people who are suffering from PTSD. Um, and so I did, I, I spoke to a couple therapists at the beginning just to get a feel like in the world of, you know, is this, you know, I'm way off in terms of my imagination. How about any military people? No, I didn't talk to any military people. But I'm t- talking in terms of reaction to the show. Have you it? know, I don't know if there's been a lot of military people there. They haven't been writing events. People haven't come to you afterwards and say, hey, I was in the Army, and boy, this happened to me, or something um, like that. There have been, actually, that's not true. There have been a f- couple of Iraqi vets who have been there uh-huh. who've had, and there have been several people who have family members, and they said they're almost identically going through experiences of what that sergeant's well, without giving away, you know, anything crucial in the play, it's basically we see this fellow at the beginning who's very, very agitated, shall we say, and he's being interviewed by the major, a black woman, he's a white man, and uh, it evolves in a series of sessions with um, some very dramatic incidents throughout the show. Dylan McDermott, who was your stepson in real life. Son, starts, actually. I adopted son, him. Yeah. Okay. In, in real life. Uh, and, and Portia are the two, the two actors in it. It must be a very emotional experience for them. When I saw her at the end of the show during the curtain call, she looked like she was very emotionally into it. I mean, no, she, I don't think they can do anything else. They're completely wiped out. Yeah, they, you know? it looks like they are. They are. It's completely taken over their lives, you know, and, and you can't do something like this. And, and I think they're incredibly bold performances. I think, look, the show is a very um, strong statement. It's very strong. And either you want that kind of medicine or you really don't want it. The show is being presented as part of the Impact Festival uh, run by the Culture Project here in New York, and it's very much in the context of political theater and theater about politics. All of your work, certainly since Vagina Monologues exploded on the public, is always seen through the prism of politics and not simply as a cultural theatrical experience. Do you think people approach your work differently going in? be it as an audience member, as a critic, now that you are seen as, you know, John read off the list of activist, feminist, all of those things, has it changed how people look at what you do, or is it exactly how you want mm. people to look at what it's you do? It's a really good question. You know, I, look, I don't think we're living in a culture that is really keen on political theater. 
Do you know? I, I think um, it's actually kind of against political theater. And, you know, I was thinking when I got the Horrible Times review, which I've gotten many of in my career, um, um, <laughs> that how familiar it was. Do you know what I mean? How familiar it's been just throughout my whole career. And that's not to say I haven't gotten wonderful reviews, because I have. But there's something about putting these two things together, you know, and and I, I was at a beautiful uh, memorial last night for Stanley Kunitz, the wonderful poet, and I was just listening to language and poetry, and I was listening to people who live in that world, and I was thinking, oh, it could have been such a different life, you know, <laughs> to just had a kind of cultural life, just had a culture, but that isn't what I was meant to do here for whatever reason, and it isn't, it isn't what's pulsing through me, and I'm very, very, very concerned about the state of the world, and I want people to wake up, and I want people to be informed, and I want people to take, to take part in transforming the, the, the political landscape. And so if people come to it, they probably do come to it with a little of, oh, here we go. Do you know what I mean? We're going to have, you know, and that's okay. You know, I remember early on, I, I worked with Joanne Woodward on one of my first plays, and and we were having this whole discussion about being polemical, and she said, oh, I'm all right with polemical. Let's let's be polemical. Let's and I remember thinking, yes, I found you know a soul sister in this world. But I think I've hopefully am not banging people over the head with a message in this play. I think it's very complicated. I think it's ambiguous. Do you think that with political theater, people? self-select in what they see because you still, when you do theater, you're asking people to pay to go hear what you want them to think about. Does, does that allow you to reach all the people that you want to reach? Well, look, I, the Vagina Monologues has been translated into 45 languages and is in 90 countries. Do you know what I mean? Certainly. It's so, okay, made so, its way. So, and I look at The Good Body, which I just toured for you know six months over America in 20 cities and is now being produced, I think, already in 20 countries. So, I, I think people are actually coming to hear it. Um, we'll see with the treatment. I have a feeling that the treatment will have a life because I think there are people who are really interested in feeling and thinking about what's going on. Um, you know, I, I'm actually going to do something next. I, I have a piece that I'm working on that actually may not be. I always think that it's not going to be political, and then by the end of it, there it is. But I, And people I, will probably come to it no matter what you write looking for the politics. Yeah, and, and in a way, that's kind of a great thing, because isn't it great that people are coming to think about issues and see what they're feeling and churn things up? And, um, you know, would I have loved, I, I was saying to a friend of mine last night, would I have loved to have been born into a world where people weren't torturing and occupying countries and destroying, the, the, the you know, with global warming and not raping women and... I could have actually just had a, a life of poetry and lived by the ocean and enjoyed the beautiful. I would have loved that life, but it, we are living in a world where we're in we're in desperate trouble. And if pe- more people don't stand up and speak out and examine what we're doing and encourage other people, I don't think we're going to be here too much longer. So I think there's a real luxury in just doing cultural work. It, you know, it implies that everything's okay to some degree. And I'm not saying that's not valid or important work, but it's not the work I'm here to do. Well, speaking of your work, the shows you've done, The Vagina Monologues, The Good Body, the other shows, now The Treatment, do you think when people come to see an Eve Ensler play, they come with a certain expectation? And what would that expectation be, do you think? Well, I think people would be confused now after The Treatment because I think... Because this is different. Yeah. um, You know, I never try to guess what people are feeling. And what they expect, because I have no idea. I I just do my work. Um, What I hope 
is that when people come to see a play that I write, they are engaged, um, they have feelings, um, they ask questions, um, they get activated in some way to be participants in this world and to change a military democracy into a humane democracy. Those are things that I... I, I hope happen in the theater. And look, I can look at the vagina monologues and see uh, years now of young women activists who have been born who are standing up and speaking out. So um, I have no idea what people expect. I don't know what I expect, you know. <laughs> and, but do you also hope that whether the show gets good reviews or bad reviews or whether people love it or hate it, that at least it gets a dialogue started? Absolutely. Gets thinking? I just want people to come. You know, at this point in my career, look, bad reviews, I don't, I don't really read reviews anymore. I, I've stopped because I rarely learn anything about my craft. Do you know, we're not living in times where people investigate plays in a way where you go, oh, I could do that better. It's either I hate it, I like it, good, bad, which isn't terribly helpful to a writer. So I don't really read reviews anymore. What I have problems with reviews, and I have problems with the power of the Times, for example, in that one review can determine who comes to see your play. And that doesn't feel terribly democratic to me. You know, it feels like kind of one major institution with enormous amount of power determining a lot of people's reality. What I hope is that we create more and more opinions and visions of what theater can be for all artists so that people try things out not based on one person's opinion. Um, what I hope is is either way, you know, um, people go and and read the review and say, oh, well, they hated it or it didn't work for them, but maybe it will work for me and it will challenge people. But that's always been the case with the New York Times. They've always wielded that power. Always, yeah. always, you know, and and I think it's 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 a complicated thing. It's a very complicated thing. It, it's sort of like, you know, um, I, well, it's a long discussion. I'm not sure I'm going to get into it right now. <laughs> let's, let's go on to other things then. Your, your, your show that you're most known for, The Vagina Monologues, first appeared here in New York in 1996. Was it in Little no, Coffee Shop? No, 94. 94. Yeah. In a Little Coffee Shop and then, I guess, Off-Broadway in At here, was, theater, downtown. At here, yeah. yeah. How did you come up with the idea for that? You know, everyone always asks that question. I have no I, idea. Well, no, I, I I read somewhere you were talking to. Yeah, somebody. I was talking to I was talking Another to a woman, woman, an older woman, about menopause, and we got onto the subject of her vagina, which you'll do if you're talking about menopause. And she talked about being dead and dried and ugly, and and I was shocked because this woman was a feminist and a forward-thinking woman. And I thought, is this what women think about their vaginas? I just couldn't believe it. So I started to say to friends casually, what do you think about your vagina? And every woman would say something more amazing. I had no intention would of Would you just bring this up over lunch? What do you think yeah, about your vagina? Yeah, or over coffee or whatever. <laughs> you know. And I would just kind of take notes. Um, but I wasn't planning to, on writing anything. Mm-hmm. And then I interviewed a series of older women who had had terrible experiences where they had ended up not. I interviewed three different women who had never had orgasms or sex as a result of early shame around their vagina. And I wrote a monologue, and that was the beginning of thinking, well, maybe this could be something. But I never I never thought for a second it would go beyond here. You know, I mean, if you were to tell me the thing that would be my breakthrough play would have been about vaginas, it would have been. <laughs> well, can you tell us about that breakthrough? How did it snowball? I mean, because here, you know, you're talking about 100-plus seats space down, you know, lower 6th Avenue. How how did the celebrity factor come in? When did it start being more everything than about it was? the vagina monologues is a mystery to me. I mean, I really. It, but you were there. <laughs> yeah, but it's still a mystery. There, there's some kind of mystical thing that surrounds it. Um, I, I I mean, I can tell you literally what happened. You know, we did the play, and immediately it was just popular. 
and there were lines to see it. Well, you you picked a provocative title. Yeah. And yeah. it got and so, attention. And so that was that. And then, you know, and then it was downtown and, and it won an Obie. But I don't even know if the Obie really had too much to do with it. It was just there was this kind of people started to come. And... Then, what we now call a viral uh, Yeah, it, it was just like people heard and people came and people heard. And then we did this one evening, the first V-Day, that we did at Hammerstein Ballroom with Glenn Close and Susan Sarandon and Lily Tomlin and Winona Ryder and everybody. And I, and I, and they all, and Whoopi Goldberg, and I asked them all to perform, and they did. It was just this miracle to raise money for groups in New York. Because I had been traveling at that point with the, the play around the world, and everywhere I went, women would line up to tell me how they'd been beaten or raped or abused. And it was overwhelming. And I was going to stop doing the play unless I did something about it. So we did that event. Well, can you explain what that event is for well, people Well, V-Day who don't know? is a global movement to end violence against women, which uses the vagina monologues in theaters and churches and temples and all over the world to put on shows to raise money for local groups that work to stop rape and battery and general mutilation and sex trafficking. And um, we did, We I thought, well, maybe we'll do one event in New York and we'll invite all these great actors. We'll invite all these groups who are working in the city to stop violence and we'll raise money for them. And that was nine years ago. And that night, was one of the more extraordinary nights in the world. There truly was. You could feel the earth move in some way. And it gave birth to this movement. And the movement literally has now, it's nine years later. We've raised $40 million. It's been in 91 countries. Um, last year, there were 2,700 productions during V-Day in 1,100 places from you know, Tanzania to Tennessee. And it's we've opened offices in Cairo. We're spreading V-Day through the Middle East. Um, we're all over Asia. We're all over Africa. I mean, so much so, Africa is so huge now that we're going to probably do a summit in South Africa of all the women doing V-Days to connect violence against women and AIDS. Um, I mean, there are so many shocking things, whether it's members of parliament who just did it in Iceland or, you know, I was in Stockholm last week and, and met the women who have been doing it there for 10 years. Or I mean, it's a huge worldwide movement. And what what's exciting about it is to see what theater can do, to see that theater, you know, can actually change lives. You know, I, Charles Isherwood wrote a piece recently in The Times and said, can political theater actually change the world? I don't think so. Well, I know it can. I've witnessed it changing the world. I've witnessed it opening safe houses where, for women who are getting mutilated. I've witnessed it stopping rapes. I've witnessed it protecting women. So I'm a huge believer in theater being a tool, not more than a tool, being a, a, an actual thing that activates people and changes their lives. Well, vagina monologues is exactly that. It's monologues about a woman's vagina. And originally you did it as a one-woman show. And it's a dozen, 15 different monologues within the context of it. Basically, you on a stool, and then it evolved into three different women doing the various monologues. Is that essentially right? Yes, that's Some it. of it happy and funny, some of it poignant and kind of sad. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of it sexual, you uh -huh. know. <laughs> well, what, what, what kind of things are covered in the vagina monologue, so Well, everything. I mean, I think it's looking at everything from shaming experiences to great orgasms to rape to um, hair to, I mean, every aspect of it. And what's really exciting, having been around the world and seeing it now in so many different languages, is that every culture makes it their own. Like when you're in Bulgaria, it's a Bulgarian vagina monologue. It's very Eastern European, very serious. You know, in Stockholm, it was very, very funny in 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 
Brazil, it was wildly sexual. In Paris, it's so it's very interesting to see how each culture really takes the same language and makes it very much their own reality. And do they use your your wording? Oh yeah, yeah. But it's just in different languages. So it isn't like it's being rewritten. No, and that's uh-huh. what's really fascinating to see the same language, but you would it's a completely different play. You know, based on and and it, it gives me hope that there's this universal language we all speak, but we have all our different beautiful styles and cultures that represent it. So it's based on that that culture's interpretation of the material. Exactly. Uh-huh. Which is just fantastic. You know, it's 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 made me see I don't know what 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 another world could look like if we were all speaking kind of a universal language, whether it was about feeding people or or um, protecting people or clothing people, or and yet allowing each culture to be very specific and very unique and very gorgeous in whatever it is, and not kind of blending everything into this Western. Now, you know, with, within within any culture, do men and women see the show differently? In other words, do women relate to it a lot differently than a man might? It depends on the men. Uh-huh. Do you know? It depends on people. Always say, "Wasn't it harder to do this in Pakistan and I than in the U.S.?" And I said, "Not really. Indiana, Islamabad." <laughs> kind of similar. You know, there's a fundamentalist underpinning in both places. There's a real resistance to talking about sex in both places. There's, you know, and and there have been amazing men who I've met in the vagina monologues who come because they're seeking spirits and they love women and they want to be better lovers and they want to understand their wives better or their daughters better or their girlfriends better. And then there are men who have a really hard time with the piece because it brings up stuff they don't want to grapple with. This past summer, the Vagina Monologues V-Day birthed an arts festival as well. And that was the was this the first summer that you yes, had done that? Yes, it was the first. How time. did that go? And because now you've gone from from an expression of your own that you performed into something that has been performed internationally to being utilized as a fundraiser to now even becoming a springboard for other people's expression. It tell, was tell very very exciting. Um, we had a festival for two weeks in June called Until the Violence Stops, Make New York City the First Safe Place on Earth for Women and Girls. And it was huge. And it was in five boroughs. There were, I don't know how many events in all the boroughs. It ended up having like 60 events throughout the two weeks in the two, in, you know, all the boroughs. Things like Vagina Mollusk was performed at Rikers Island and women did marches and they did red tents and they did just all these great local events. And then there were five, really huge marquee events, um, one of which was Necessary Targets, a play of mine performed by Jane Fonda and Kathy Bates and Kerry Washington and just extraordinary cast, uh, Marion Seldes, who was just so extraordinary. And and then um, there was a, an event called Monologues from Writers Around the World and um, a rant, a prayer, something, a chant, a rant, a memory, and a prayer. A memory, a monologue, a rant, and a prayer. Right. And I wrote to all my favorite writers around the world and asked them if they'd write um, one piece for the evening. And Edward Albee, I mean, it, the list is extraordinary from, you know, Alice Walker to Edward Albee to Kim Crenshaw to um, Michael Eric Dyson. I mean, Ariel Dorfman. And they all wrote pieces. It was Michael Cunningham. And the, the evening was a marathon. It went up for four hours. But do you know, over 1,500 people stayed. 
which uh, to me was fantastic. And we're actually going to do a book. Random House is going to publish it um, next year of, of all these pieces. And then we had a wonderful evening um, at Alice Tully Hall of Women in Prison, Writings from Women in Prison on Violence. And you've worked for a number of years with women in prison at the Bedford Correctional Institute. Indeed. Um, can you talk about that work a little bit and, and what that's The work's been a, a very, very important work uh, for me. Um, in terms of waking me up to um, the reality of what's really going on with women in prison and, and prison in general. And, you know, I, I, I always say I, I have this new book that's coming out in October, and there's a chapter in it um, that talks about the work in prison. And I always say, you know, what terrified me about prison ultimately wasn't the barbed wire or the scary uniforms or the crimes women had done. It was falling in love with the women because it was completely unexpected. And there I was sitting in a room with many women who had committed heinous crimes, and yet they were extraordinary women. And there was this huge contradiction, this huge paradox. How do you sit in a room with women who are kind and smart and perceptive and remorseful and and who've done terrible things? Both those things exist in this room. And to live in that ambiguity and to live with that duality was a complete life change for me. Um, And so we did an enormous amount of writing in that group about a good part of the group is really women taking responsibility for their crimes, examining their crimes, reflecting on their crimes, looking at their crimes, and and writing about it. And, And that involves where they began as human beings, as children, up until when those crimes actually happened to who they are today. And the writing's extraordinary. And we did this group. I, I, I did that group for eight years. And then we made this documentary called What I Want My Words to Do to You, which was done at uh, Sundance. And it actually won the Freedom of Expression Award there and then went on to be on POV and is now being used as a tool in prisons to help people in working with prisoners, which I, you know, which I think is really exciting. Um, but I, the work continues. I'm hopefully going to start again in, the, you know, this fall and continue the group. But that evening we did in June was a, 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 a collection of work from prisoners, from women prisoners around America. And it was performed by Felicia Rashad and Rosie O'Donnell and Rosaria Dawson and Shirley Knight, extraordinary group of actors and, and um, ex-cons who were performing it with them. And it was one of the most beautiful evenings I've ever spent in the theater. You know, sounds like there could be a play in there somewhere too. Well, hopefully this work will. We're already getting requests now from people all around the country to use this evening to bring attention and to think about women in prison, which is very exciting. Well, certainly, your friends at the Culture Project have done a number of projects utilizing. You might even say the testimonial form of theater, you know, real work by people who've had particular experiences. So wonder whether we should be, be watching down at the Culture Project yeah. for well, that. Well, they're doing great work, really great work. And you mentioned in all of this that you have a book, which is now just out. Can you tell us about the book? Yes. Um, well, I, I'm very excited about the book. It's the first book I've ever written. Um, it's called Insecure at Last, Losing It in a Security-Obsessed World. And um, it's... It's kind of a collection of stories and narratives over the last 10 years of from Bosnia, from Afghanistan, from Juarez, from um, all kinds of places that I've been in the world, at Kosovo, looking at um, security, the idea of security and what is security, and 
what I think is this illusion of security. I mean, none of us are secure. We all grow old. We all die. We change. People leave us. People come. People go. Um, and how we've come to use this, or the government has come to use this notion of security as a way of really controlling people, inducing people with fear, narrowing our vision, narrowing our whole understanding of the world, and keeping us in these tiny little isolated um, either families, communities, or countries. And I think the book is looking at how if security were not the point of our lives, if compassion were the point of our lives, if peace were the point of our lives, if connecting with other people, we would actually be much more secure, ironically. That when security becomes what your trajectory is, you actually become a person who lives with fear, lives defensively, and starts to create more and more violence all the time. And you actually miss the things that are making you insecure, like, for example, global warming. Like, for example, 400, I think it is 400, $390 billion a year is spent on the defense budget. $390 billion, okay? The closest country to that is something like Russia, where they spend $20 billion. So we're actually competing with ourselves now to defend ourselves against ourselves. $60 billion a year would feed all the people of the world, would give them drinkable water, would have a huge impact on AIDS, and would educate people. $60 billion. Now, I kind of thing, call me crazy, that that might reduce terrorism if the people of the world were fed and didn't have diseases and had places to live and were educated and had drinkable water. But instead, what we're doing is putting all of our energy into defense. And the truth is, is that if you look at this amazing chart I found the other day of how many people in this country actually die and are threatened by terrorism, it's it's 3,000 something this year. Well, Hundreds of thousands of people died from all kinds of other things that we're not putting any attention to. So I think there's this this incredible kind of distortion that's occurred over these last years around security. And, and I'd like to believe that Americans are brave and complicated and creative and not fear-based. But we become very fearful people and very isolated people. And the world you know, is progressively moving further and further away from us in disdain and contempt. Now, as I'm sitting here listening to you speak, watching you, watching your body language, your face, the passion, the emotion that you bring, I think of the five words I used to describe you at the beginning of the program, playwright, author, actor, activist, feminist. Of those five, which one would you say best fits you? Oh, I think the one on there, the one uh, the one I feel most isn't even on there. Which is that? I just human being. Oh, well, human being. You sure. know, I think I, I really am, am becoming less and less interested in those kind of identities uh-huh. because they often set you up to be somebody different. I'm really interested right now in how we give up the identities that give us security and find identities that connect us to other people. I, if you say activist, there will be people in this country who are immediately afraid of me. If you say feminist, oh, please, people will go running. I'm a human being who happens to have a vagina. You know, I I like that as an identity. But what I am is a person who's very interested in how we as human beings are going to build a future where the human species gets to continue. And I think that comes from not clinging to these identities, whether it be religious identities or um, sexual identities, whatever the identities are that isolate you and keep you other than someone else. But you're also a human being who has a voice and uses the pen and the stage to express what you're thinking, what's going on inside. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so what more can be done in theater to advance these ideas since we are a theater program? I mean, you are you are one author. There are certainly 
other authors that we think of as political writers, certainly Tony Kushner. But do you think there is enough politics in theater and what can we do to, to, to make theater a place where this kind of dialogue can take place? Thank you for asking that question. Um, I don't think there are enough well, first of all, there's not many political writers in America right now. And I think part of that is the market and the commercial marketplace. There is no support for political writing. You have to have an environment where you can take risks and make bold statements. Look, I got completely mixed reviews for the treatment across the board. We have to have space where that can happen, where you take bold, you take chances, where you speak out. There's no place. The Culture Project right now is the only place really in New York where that's happening. And I think part of it is how do we as artists, cultural people, start creating spaces where younger artists feel willing to take risks, to write about things that matter, to speak and create opinions and dialogue in the culture. And the, the, look, the marketplace is so difficult now. You can't really even do a show off Broadway for less than millions of dollars, you know? So, you know, I, I, I go to, I, I think of all my dear producer friends who want to support me. And I say, I want to do a play on torture. And they're like, uh-huh. Okay. Well, that's really great. <laughs> so, sounds like it could be a good musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wonderful. I mean, Tortured or I want to do a play, and I, and I want to I, I want to look at rape and violence, or I want to do a play. There's no place unless you make it palatable, or unless you make it commercial, you know. Um, and we have to develop theater, and we have to put money into places where artists are supported to do that kind of work. Is that something, certainly what you've been doing through V-Day is very much about taking the money and, and providing it to the people who need the help. Is it something that you are at all exploring is to create other theatrical venues, other theatrical opportunities for people? Well, I'm talking very much to Alan Bushman at the Culture Project about how we could really develop political theater right now, how we could develop a political theater or a political theater, how we could really create. Because what I'm concerned about is younger artists. I've had a great life. I, 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 my work is done. I'm very lucky. But what are we doing to encourage young writers to take risks? What are we doing to encourage young people to find their voice or to look at the times or to translate that into theater? And I worry that the theater is just getting progressively more and more and more commercial. Are there people out there that you see that people should be paying attention to, younger artists that oh, you're yes. aware of? Yes. Who, who should people be looking towards? <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. Uh, my brain is completely... Well, I mean, I think... I, I, I don't want to go and say names because mm -hmm. whenever you say names, you invariably leave somebody out. Um, I, I know a lot of younger women and men who are really struggling to find their voice and who are really struggling to put out work that's important. Look, look at the deaf poets, for example, like Suhair Hamad and, and um, Stacey Ann Chin and all those, the, that group of people are doing, producing extraordinary writing that needs to be supported. Um, I, I, I know, and I, I think I'm going to leave it at that um, because I'm, I'm terrified I will forget to say somebody. But what I do know is that if there were an environment in the way that torture creates, you know, an environment creates torture, an environment can also create political change. And if you create an environment and, and you invite people to come forward and be bold, amazing things begin to happen. Let's use one name, Eve Ensler. And you said a moment ago that you've had a good life and you've, you've done what you wanted to do. But I can't believe that because you're, you're still fairly young. Uh, what do you want to do next? What's what's next for you, do you think? <laughs> what what, what <laughs> subjects have you... You're thinking I'm fairly young. What, um, what subjects have you not touched on yet? Well, I'm, I have a lot of stuff that I'm working on right now. You know, I'm, 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 I'm going to do something on... Um, 
I'm going to do something with HBO next on on relationships, which I'm very interested in and thinking about what they are at this point in time because I have no idea. Someone will let me know. And um, and I'm I want to look at um, you know I I'm really I've been focusing on teenage girls and I'm working I've been working on this piece for the last four years on teenage girls and and what stops girls at a certain point in their lives from having voice and having power and having vision and having um, I'm looking at that. Obviously, the acclaim and and popularity of vagina monologues and and your subsequent work has given you an enormous platform. But at the same time, does it also take you away from doing your creative work? How do you balance being one on, on John's list of words? One one that I certainly saw that might have been missing, even though you don't like them, would be you're you're even now an icon. Can you do the same creative work? Can you do as much work as you want to do, even though the work you get to do has such greater impact? Well, you know, one of the advantages of being a a slightly self-flagellating, self-hating person, which I've been my entire life, is that I have to write in order to keep my sanity. Do you know, it's not something I do because... You know, I'll let, I, I literally have to write all the time. And I've been that way since I was 10 years old. So, um, for example, I did the Good Body Tour, and I was performing eight shows a week, and I wrote the book in the course of that tour because there was so much coming up doing the show every night in America, all over America. There were just so many ideas coming up. So I just wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, I I think you get to a point in your, in your life where... Um, you know, it, 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 I think when I was younger, what I wanted out of the world were so different than what I want now. You know, I when you're younger, you want to prove yourself, and you want you you, you want to have a place in the culture. You want to you want to have a voice. You want to you want to have an impact through your writing. And 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 now, what I feel is when I get up every day, I want to figure out how we're going to stop the trajectory of cruelty and violence. And 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 that's what I'm interested in. And I think you know, as long as that continues to pulse through me, writing will pulse through me. You know, there'll be something more to say, hopefully. <laughs> and I think, you know, you certainly have made an impact on, on culture, certainly with the, the, the V Project, but also with your, your various work. And the treatment currently running at the Culture Project here in New York on uh, Bleecker Street, starring Dylan McDermott and Portia. And Eve Ensler, on that note, I think we say thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks, Eve. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you.